Why is it a catch-22? So let's look for a moment in the Tanya, how the Tanya describes in the opening first line chapter of the Tanya, the first few lines discusses the following concept. And the question that the Tanya begins with is the question of the catch-22 of guilt. Let's see it in text 1 on page 88. It has been taught. And as the Talmud says, Before birth, each soul is administered an oath. Be righteous and do not be wicked. And even if the entire world tells you that you are righteous, regard yourself as a wicked person. This requires clarification, the Tanya asks. For it seemingly contradicts the dictum, do not regard yourself as a wicked person. Furthermore, now listen to the Tanya's question. If you consider yourself wicked, you'll be troubled and despondent. That will prevent you from serving God with joy and positive emotion. On the other hand, if you're not all perturbed by your flaws, may end up not taking yourself or your actions seriously, God forbid. So the Alter Rebbe over here tell, asks us a question in Tanya. And he tells us very something very simple. First of all, it sounds like a, tr- a technical question. As we find anywhere in the Talmud, it says someplace in the Talmud something like this, and it says someplace else in the Talmud something like that. Now, anytime we have a technical question, we can get a technical answer. Well, as anybody that's ever studied Talmud before will tell you, anytime that the Talmud says, doesn't it say here and doesn't it say this and is a contradictory, well, you just relearn what it says there and you have an answer. <coughs> Same over here as in this case. There are many commentators on the Mishnah that give such a technical answer. But the Al-Dureb over here is not asking a technical question. He is asking an emotional question, a very untechnical question, and a very relevant issue which is very disturbing to us as, as a people. Which is number one. If you tell me to feel guilty that I did something wrong, as it says in one piece of the Talmud, consider yourself wicked, what happens then? I get negative feelings. I can become despondent. What do we talk about as negative feelings? Negative feelings is the gas, it deflates the gas, deflates the enthusiasm, deflates my emotion of doing the right thing. Negative emotions is something which bogs me down, as we discussed in Lesson 1. So therefore, if I'm starting to have feelings and guilt over my past mass decision, bad decisions and moral failures, it would seem like guilty, feeling guilty is something not good. But on the other hand, if I don't feel guilty, hey, big deal. I'll do it again. Why? Because I don't feel like I did anything wrong. There's no accountability. Just move on with life. Don't let it bother you. So which one is it? Should I feel guilty and then become despondent? Or should I not feel guilty and then not care? Just because you don't feel guilty doesn't mean that you don't care. If I don't feel guilty, so then why should I care? Feeling guilty means I'm not taking into account what I did wrong. Feeling guilty, if I don't feel guilty, that means I don't consider my actions valuable. Some people feel guilty for doing right. So some people feel guilty for? Discipline your child, it's sad, but you do it for the greater good. So why would you feel guilty then? Some people do anyway. because. Why would you feel guilty for doing something good? Hmm. I only feel remorse when I did something wrong. I understand what he's trying to say. That means because I'm punishing my kids, so then when I don't feel guilty, I may feel bad that I have to punish my kid, but I don't feel guilty because of it. If I feel guilty, then I'm doing something wrong. I'm 
Why do I feel guilty? Do I feel guilty for helping another person unless that person stabs me in the back? Of course. And I feel like I did something wrong. But I don't feel guilty if I did something... Just because somebody... If I have to do something negative, and we're going to get to in a moment, about negative emotions being good in some places. So what we see over here is this is seemingly the ultimate catch 22, the first question of the Tanya. And an interesting thing you will notice in the Tanya. And the first page of the Tanya, there are many different questions. Some technical, some behavioral, and so on. And the Al-Turebi goes on to answer every single one of those questions throughout the Tanya. Chapter 14, chapter 26, <coughs> chapter 47, all different places he answers the Tanya. This Catch-22, there is no specific answer in the Tanya for it. In fact, the Tzamech Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, explains that the entire Tanya actually answers this question. Because what is the Tanya called? As we discussed in front of the class one, is the book of the strugglers. This is part of the struggle. And this is part of the struggle. So the answer to this question, however, it's not going to be clearly spelled out in the Tanya. Perhaps we can say that the entire Tanya is the answer, and we're going to analyze that today. But in order to answer this catch-22, we've got to back up. We have to back up and go back to what we spoke about at length, talking about the concept of the detriment of negative emotions. How bad negative emotions can be. We discussed at length in class one, class two, about the importance of positive emotions, the gas that fuels us to be able to do the right thing, the negative emotions which deflates us and doesn't allow us to do the right thing. There's one problem with that, which is a phrase that King Solomon said in the book of Proverbs. Text number two, four words. In every sadness, there is a benefit. If we talk about sadness being the negative emotion, what kind of benefit can be there? What is King Solomon talking about? How can King Solomon come along in the book of Proverbs and say, there's a benefit from being sad from a negative emotion? Is there a possibility that a negative emotion can be beneficial? Now let's put the question a little bit differently. When we talk about negative emotions, not every negative emotion is a bad thing, and not every positive emotion is a good thing. As we recall, if I have a positive emotion and I'm joyful and I'm gleaning and I'm gloating about somebody else's downfall, <coughs> that's a negative thing. If I have a negative emotion because of what I've done something wrong, is that a positive thing or a good thing? So not every negative emotion is bad. The question is, can negative emotions be good? Are there any negative emotions that King Solomon is talking about in the book of Proverbs when he says in every sadness there is a benefit? What benefit can I get from sadness? What benefit, what good can I derive from something sad? So the, so the Alter Rebbe in Tanya goes on to say, text number three, and takes this verse. In every sadness there is a benefit implies that there is a benefit and a gain to be derived from negative emotions. But the phraseology actually suggests, now listen to this, that the negative emotions per se have no virtue and is only that a benefit derived from them. What the Alter Rebbe says over here is as follows. The negative emotion itself has nothing to it. It's what we get from it. If you want to take the common phrase which is said, no pain, no gain. The pain itself I don't want. But why do I go through the pain? 
is to beget the eventual gain that will come from it. As we find the famous expression is brought in Psalm 126, text number 4, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And embedded in the fabric of creation is that in every negative there is a positive. You have a light bulb, you want it to work, you need to have a negative, and you need to have a positive, right? In order for day to come, what was before day, if you read in the book of Genesis? It was night. In order for night, only then came day. In order for dark, then came light. So in every negative there is a positive. So what King Solomon is saying here, one can suggest, is that there is nothing within the virtue of despondency on its own, but there is a benefit that comes because of it. That means negative emotions in itself has nothing, but there's a benefit that comes from it, that means after that negative emotion. So when where we need to go to is we need to go to find out, being that we know that a negative emotion is not a good thing, we now know that we have a question about guilt. Is guilt legitimate or not? So let's find out what is a legitimate type of guilt. What would be a good guilt, if we want to call it at that? So what we're going to see today, and just to give you a little bit of outline of how we're going to look at this, we're going to look at this like a funnel. That means... At the beginning, we're going to start off by saying there is a lot of guilt that we're allowed to have. And as we proceed in the class, we're going to be narrowing it down to when, what, where, and how we can have that guilt. Okay? So just follow with me. So at the risk of stating the obvious, we know that it's very Jewish to feel guilty. Right? As Mahdi stated before, part of being Jewish seems like you've got to be guilty. We know remorse is a negative emotion, but when done properly, it's good. What kind of good it means? It can bring us benefit. And the question is, how do we find a benefit in being remorse and in feeling guilty? So let's go back to the time, and let's start from the basics. In fact, let's go back to Maimonides. Maimonides says as follows, it's a little bit of a long um, paragraph inside, but let's look at it, let's read it through together. Text number five. Free will is granted to all humans. Should we desire to tread the path of goodness and be righteous, the choice is ours. Should we desire to turn to the path of evil and wicked, the choice is ours. Do not entertain the view held by the fools of the nations and the majority of the simple-minded Jews that from the moment of the human's conception, God decrees whether the person will be righteous or wicked. This is untrue. Rather, each individual can become righteous, like our teacher Moses, or wicked, like Jeroboam. Now, when we talk about righteous and wicked, this is in behaviors, not like we spoke about in internal thoughts. We can embrace wisdom or foolishness, be merciful or cruel, miserly or generous. The same is true of all character traits. No one compels, dictates, or leads us towards any of these paths. Rather, we, on our own, initiative and decision, veer to the path of our choosing, this is implied by the prophet Jeremiah who stated, neither evil nor good emerges from the mouth of one above. Meaning that the creator does not decree in a person whether they will be righteous or evil. Consequently, those who do wrong have no one but themselves to blame. It is therefore proper to cry and mourn over our moral failings and the damage we have inflicted upon ourselves 
upon our souls. This is implied by the following verse, what should we rightfully aggrieve a person has sins. What we see over here is, when we see a text that it says, besides from what the text is telling us here, is that there's a concept of remorse in Jewish law. But there's even something a little deeper, where sometimes we can have a misplaced type of remorse. A misplaced, a misplaced type of remorse, which comes from being overly religious. I'll give you a little example. There was once this chassid who borrowed about a, a large sum of money from his friend. And he went over to him to get paid back. So he goes over to him and he says, you borrowed this large sum of money. You haven't paid me back yet. And he looks at him and he says, pay you back? Oh, of course I took the money. But what's money? Everything's God's. Why should I? You know, the only thing that exists is only but infinite. The chassid looks at him and says, but you took money from me. Yeah, but everything's nothing. There's nothing in this world but God. The chassid doesn't know what to do. So he goes quickly to the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, and he tells him, this chassid took money from me. I come to him, he acknowledges that he borrowed the money, but when I talk about paying back, he becomes like this holy individual that only thing that exists is God and nothing exists but God. What am I to tell him? Tzemach Tzedek says, call him in. So, at least the Chassid had a little bit of recognition that there's something that exists other than God, which was the Rebbe, that he came to him. And he asked him, did you borrow money from him? He says, of course I borrowed money from him. Are you willing to pay him? Pay him back everything, what exists besides God? So the Chassid tells him, you know what? The Rebbe, the Tzemach tells him, so we're going to tell this nothing, to take this nothing, put him down into nothing, Beat him with the nothing, and then we'll see if nothing really still exists. <laughs> <laughs> and he got the message. Sometimes he doesn't say did he get the message. <laughs> sometimes we become so religious, and that's why. That's and we say big deal, God, you know, <laughs> and therefore all in the areas of God grants us absolute free choice. It's his fault. He let me make the choice. Why should I feel that I did anything wrong? If God didn't want me to make the choice to do something wrong, He wouldn't allow me to do it. What does my mind say? No. Everybody has free choice. You have free choice in what to do. And therefore, when you choose to do something, you made a choice. It was you that decided to be charitable or miserly. It was you that decided to be kind or lack of kind. To be smart or lack smart. That means you can study or not study. What is this telling us? That as opposed to shame that we discussed last week, which is inappropriate, seemingly, feeling guilty is appropriate when you've done something wrong. Because, what is Maimonides' last words that he says? Maimonides says, consequently, those who do wrong have no one but themselves to blame. That means I can blame myself if I did something wrong. There is no excuse for poor choices. It's not nature or nurture. I have nobody to blame it on but myself if I did something wrong. That means I can be guilty. Additionally, this is telling us, what is a legitimate guilt? When can I say that something is legitimately guilty? So if you look at the exercise 3.2, it will help us out a little bit. How appropriate is guilt as a response to the following scenarios? One, very appropriate. Two, somewhat appropriate. Three, not appropriate at all. Or four, it's all complicated. So let's try it out. Forgetting a spouse's birthday. Anybody? 
One, two, three, or four. Huh? Very inappropriate. Very inappropriate, you say. Okay. Texting while driving and rear-ending another vehicle. Very, okay. Missing a child's graduation due to a medical emergency. Not at all appropriate. Okay. Wasting years of life as a result of choosing a dead-end career. It's complicated. It's complicated. There we go. Eating unhealthy. Eating unhealthy? Is, a, is guilty? Should you feel guilty about it or Somewhat. not? Somewhat. Somewhat, okay. Befriending a person who eventually causes harm to one family. Oh. Three. Three, okay, not at all appropriate. Okay, now let's, so let me ask you the last one. Why did you say it's not, a, not at all appropriate? Because you have no control of what that other person does. Very you have good. no control of what he's going to do. You have no, okay, no knowledge but everybody said on texting while driving <coughs> rear end the vehicle that it's fully appropriate to feel guilty. Why? Because you have control. Because you have control. No, okay. they don't have control. So if we would narrow it down, what the Rambam is telling us basically is when there is the appropriate guilt. Appropriate guilt is over our intentional bad choices. I chose not to study. I chose not to be not to be charitable. I chose the behaviors I choose. Appropriate guilt to a lesser degree would be negligence. I was supposed to do something, let's say, I wasn't proactive in studying. I didn't study properly, and therefore when I get older, I don't know what to do. Maybe I haven't actively done something wrong, but I was negligent also. But what is a not appropriate guilt is over an honest mistake. A mistake that was not in my control. A mistake where I had no intention to do something wrong. I was being this friend, missing a child's graduation for a medical reason. Wasting years of life for a dead-end career. Did you know that that career, that today, that would be obsolete? Maybe yes or maybe not. Or, after diligent research, you make all the different uh, things and you find that maybe this guy is appropriate, but all of a sudden you see, they have some bad bag apples. So the bottom line is, where is it appropriate to have guilt? When you made a faulty decision. The choice was yours. But where is a not appropriate guilt? Where you're only looking at a results-based concept. That means, do not look at the result. Look at what brought you to the result. That means if what brought you to the result was not your choice, there's no reason to feel guilty about it. But if what brought you to the result, if what brought you to the, de- to the decision is what you are guilty about, that is an appropriate guilt. That means... The appropriate remorse should only be over a morally faulty choice that you made, not of a result that it came because of it. That means, if I was texting while I was driving, that is a choice I made, I should have remorse and feel guilty for what I've done wrong. What happened because of it, I cannot feel guilty. That's a result that I didn't do. I did this. That means I have to have remorse on the choice that I did, not in the result. The result's not in my hand. What about what? Oh, else? that sounds wrong. Why not? You mean you? Let, let me say this in this different and way. And because you were texting and there was an accident. Of course, that's my that, fault. That's my decision. That is your that's point. my choice. Okay, I thought what you said. I missed. But we can choice. control. For example, yes. If I become friends with an individual and that guy ends up being a fraudster. I made a choice, but that was not a choice. I had control over that result of him being a fraudster. So that was also my choice. It was not a direct result of my decision. You didn't mean. So a rule of thumb, as we said, over a fault. So therefore I go back and I say yes again. 
I can have remorse on a faulty decision, not on a faulty result. I cannot control results. What if it's a faulty decision that you didn't know was a faulty decision at the time? For example, when I was a kid, I had a small, like, you know, bunny rabbit. I gave it a bat. Then it wasn't a decision. Killed it. Then it wasn't a decision. Okay, even if you Because it wasn't a decision that I made the due diligence to decide I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Okay. It was I wanted a benefit and a result happen. Let's say I decide to tell somebody to, uh, I want to drive somebody to the park, and when the park is closed, and because of that, they end up, you know, hanging out there and doing something wrong. Did I do something wrong because I drove them to the park? Not at all. I had the proper thing in mind. So what time does it matter? It's not a, the decision that I made was a good decision. The result was a negative result. That's not my fault. Okay? Yes? Sorry? We're going to get to that in a moment. We're gonna actually going to talk about that later on. <coughs> yes? <laughs> on the contrary. It comes quicker. Okay. So what we see over here is, <clears throat> if we go back to our question that we asked in the beginning of the class, think about now that guilt that's lingering. Identify a past choice that leaves you with a significant lingering feeling of guilt. Is that a choice that you're feeling guilty about? Or is that a result that you're feeling guilty about? If it's a result, then you have to reconsider that guilt or that item that you picked. Can it never be both? Oh, yes, yeah, what you have a decision that causes a faulty result. So, okay, but what are you focusing on? Why are you focusing on the result? The result is only an action which came about because of the decision. And we're soon going to see why you should only be focusing on the decision, not on the, uh, not on the result. But it's important that you would, because what really you are, and this is going back to what she mentioned before, when you're texting and driving and somebody gets hit by a car, because, or you smash the car because of it, the result is because of your decision. When you deflect, and let me go a step further, when you deflect your guilt because of the result, what actually are you doing? You know, let's say it's a wealthy person. So they can just pay for the car, car's fixed, and they go back to texting. <laughs> right? When the guilt is because of the decision, the next time you're not going to text again. So you always have to look at the decision, not the result, if you want the guilt to actually mean something. And that's when we talk about legitimate guilt, we're going to get to the next stop. And the next step of legitimate guilt is when it brings productivity. That means... Are all remorse choices? Now that we know, okay, because I remember we said we're going to get a funnel here. We remember we said legitimate guilt is when there is a choice that you made. Why the choice, not the result, is because of the next step. Now let's go to text number six. Text number six. In every sadness there is a benefit. Implies that there is a benefit again to be derived from the negative emotions. But the phraseology actually suggests that the negative emotion, per se, has no virtue, and is only a benefit derived from them. That benefit is the true joy in God that follows genuine anguish. Let's read this again. From this we have now two conclusions. Number one, any negative emotion that includes remorse must come to a positive experience. That means if you're going to have a legitimate guilt but it's not going to be productive, there's not going to be a positive that comes from it, 
throw it away. That guilt is worthless. So get back to the question, why shouldn't I focus be guilty about the result of the smashing of the car? Because if it's not going to change my behavior, it's not productive, that guilt is worthless. In order, there need, in order, there, in order, that means, and later on we're going to learn how it even brings you to a greater joy. In order for a negative emotion to be beneficial and productive, there's a next step. There's step number two. Look in the last word. And the word that the Al Rebbe uses, the last two words in text six, that follows a genuine remorse. Genuine anguish, I'm sorry. What does it mean, genuine? And what is, when we talk about genuine, it doesn't mean genuine that, oh, I'm really guilty. Genuine means feeling upset, as we spoke about in the previous classes. Sometimes you can feel upset because I feel like a phony. Is that genuine? As we discussed, no, that's a negative emotion which is coming from the evil inclination. Or because I'm feeling shame and feeling inadequacy. And today we're going to talk about a third example of an invalid negative emotion, which is a guilt over the result of our choices, not because of our choice ourselves. That means it's not genuine if it's based on the result, not on the choice. So what do we see from here? That there is nothing to be gained from a negative emotion. Because there is nothing to be gained from a negative emotion... Let's add a third assumption to this. Sometimes when we feel remorse over a faulty <coughs> choice, we also look for something else. A change in behavior in the future. What's the point of feeling guilty about something if you're going to do it again? Right? What's the point if I feel guilty? I feel guilty. Oh, that's terrible that I just text and drive. But the next moment you get into the car, what do you do? You do it again. So what did your guilt accomplish? <coughs> what point was there in your guilt? What point was there in the negative emotion? Why did you have that negative emotion? Where did your negative emotion get you? So we now narrowed our appropriate guilt or appropriate remorse to a little thinner detail. Number one, what does your appropriate guilt have to be? Only a choice, not a result. Number two, that guilt is only appropriate if it's going to be productive. Meaning, what is considered productive? Leading you to a positive emotion, not being despondent. Not only to a positive emotion, but getting you to positively change your behavior of what you have done previously. Or else what point is there in the guilt? So what we see from over here, something very simple. The only way we can have an appropriate guilt is, again, there has to be the three core principles. Number one, it's your choice, not a result-based guilt. Number two, it's going to get you to have a be-, be in a better place because of it. Number three, be a better person because of it. Otherwise, it's inappropriate guilt. It's something which is going to deflate you. Now, how do we go about this? The question that we have now is, very good, this is all good, said and done. How do I know when I'm feeling guilty, if this guilt that I have is going to be productive or unproductive? 
How do I know if it's going to change me? How do I know if it's going to make a difference? So let's see the Tanya's recipe for it. How does the Tanya tell us if this is going to help us change? And the Tanya says as follows. Text number seven. Freeing ourselves negative emotions that result from a more spiritual matters is not a simple task. Nevertheless, we must seek ways and means to do so. Clearly, while serving God, such as praying or studying Torah, we must read ourselves from all negative emotions because we must serve Him with gladness and joy. Heart. And I'm going to skip the rest, and I'm going to, as we go, as we continue throughout the chapter after class, we're going to break down this part of the Tanya. So I, we'll see as we get to it. So one of the most important things in order to find out what is productive and unproductive guilt, and what we need in life and many times the problem that we all suffer with is moral clarity. Moral clarity. How do I know what's right to feel guilty about and what's not right not to feel guilty about? Like the prophet Isaiah used to admonish the Jewish people and say, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who present darkness as light and light as darkness, who regard bitter as sweet and sweet as bitter. The first step we need to know is what's correct and incorrect. If we are morally confused and we cannot distinguish wrong from right, right from left, dark and light, then what are we in, this, in a whole mess, messed up way and our prognosis is completely bleak. There's no hope. The first thing we need to know is we have to know if we did the right thing. And in order to know that we did the right thing, then we can be remorseful for something that we did wrong. And to do the right thing, we need wisdom, knowledge, and discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. So the Altarebbe tells us that when it comes to the area of remorse, there is often a moral confusion. And sometimes we think that the very fact that I was remorseful about something that I did, I'm already on the right track. Why? Because I feel regret, I feel guilty for what I did. I know what's right, I know what's wrong, and now I feel guilty that I did it. And therefore we think that that feeling is sourced in an inner truism that I have within myself, within my soul. I finally came to the realize I did something wrong. And now I'm starting to feel good about it because I'm guilty. I feel guilty about it. Actually, the author Rebbe says, that feeling of guilt, that feeling of remorse, this cruel, devious play of the evil inclination. And it actually comes from a self-centeredness. Such feelings are toxic and something we should never have. Remorse that is not properly sourced will lead a person to the absolute opposite of what it's meant to achieve. Remorse, seemingly righteous and productive, but in actuality is the natural soul and it's toxic. Rule number one is because that's your natural instinct. Your natural instinct is, remember, the evil inclination comes from the natural soul. And the first thing I, when I do something wrong is, what do I do? Oh, why did I do it? I feel so bad. Do you really feel bad? So why tomorrow will you do that again? 
Remorse that is not properly, not only what does it do? It causes us despondency. I beat myself up and I say, oh, I'm such a terrible person because I was able to sink so low. And all of a sudden when I'm in wrestling with evil inclination, I become deflated. I start losing gas because it's a result of a misguided remorse. It worsens the situation. It makes it worse because I start feeling bad. I start beating myself up because of it. I start going into a depression because of it. I start saying, oh, I'm not worth anything anyways. Why should I even show up? I did this wrong. I did that wrong. Where is that coming from? Not from a righteous soul. That's from the evil inclination. That is his point. <coughs> that is the conniving character of the evil inclination. To make you feel at one point that you're self-righteous. Because sins, oh yeah, I feel bad about it. That must be a good thing. No. Like in the words of the great Hasidic master, the Chayz of Lublin used to say, text number nine, more than the misdeed itself, the evil inclination values the negative emotion that results from the misdeed. It hopes that the negative emotion will lead the person to enter a state of despondency. As it turns out, the Yetzirah gets a person to do something wrong, and instead of not just getting the person to do something wrong, it's more motivated not only to get the person to do something wrong, but to get them to feel guilty afterwards. That's what the evil inclination wants. It wants you to do something wrong. That's only the, that's only the appetizers. But what's the entree for the evil inclination? Guilt afterwards. Remorse. Why? Because one sin is bad. Once you start feeling remorse, you'll do even more. You'll say, eh, I feel so bad. I already fell this low. I'll do another one. I'm already at this stage. No, I already didn't go to shul today. So let me go to McDonald's. I already McDonald's already. And that's the way it works. That's exactly what he wants. And gets the person to do a number of foolish things in the method of saying, I'm already so bad. <laughs> so what's wrong if I do something a little more? Brings to mind the following idea. Text number 10. The evil inclination is called the animal soul. Not because it behaves like a brute animal at all times. At times it is a fox. The most cunning of beasts. And great wisdom is needed to see through its machinations. At other times it disguises itself as the garb of a righteous person, sincere, humble, and a refined character. Always bear in mind and hold dear the following golden rules. If there is a course of action that is productive or leads to a positive action, any opposition to it, even to a seemingly sourced and the most noble intention, is merely a scheme of the animal soul. If the remorse, the bottom line that the altar of it that we find over here is, if the bottom line is, if this remorse doesn't bring you to being a better person, get rid of it. It doesn't belong there. You might feel holy and great. As in the words the Hasidim used to say, the evil inclination can wear a strimal. You know what a strimal is? You know the wheel of the whole Hasidic are. But he's st- and he chose on Shabbos. But he's still the evil inclination. He'll dress himself up into anything to be able to get you. And he did it. And he, they used to call the evil inclination the Kluginke, the smart one. You know why he was called the smart one? Because he's conniving in getting us to make these choices. Huh? Smart. Shrewd, smart, yes. 
to be able to, and it gets us to make these regrettable choices, but it manages to convince us that the choices are wise and noble and proper. So what we see from over here is, we know that first of all, remorse over past choices is legitimate and appropriate, but at times we need to know where is it from. Legitimate remorse over past and poor choices is only, we have to remember it, if it's unproductive, it's a ploy from the evil inclination. And the only time that it could be something of positivity, if it's productive, then we know that it's coming from a good place. Which leads us to the obvious question. When I'm experiencing remorse, how do I know if it's a ploy from the evil inclination? How do I know if it's going to be beneficial or productive? Right now I'm feeling guilty. Do I know what's going to happen from now? How do I know if it's the right thing or the wrong thing? How do I know if this is toxic, like from the evil inclination, or if it's pure and helpful and legitimate? So the Tanya tells us how we know. Very simple. Very simple. Nothing too complicated. Text number 11. Even while involved in commerce or more other mundane matters, If we experience negative emotions or worry regarding spiritual matters, we must know that it is a ploy of the evil inclination. It is a goal, its goal is well known, to subsequently lure us into the following its lustful desires, God forbid. Were it not so, how does genuine remorse, which is derived from love and fear of God, come to us in the midst of our mundane activities? Delta Rebbe tells us something very interesting. When do you get that guilt? If you get the guilt in the middle of working, in the middle of a, ha- a holy, a mundane act, you're walking down the street and you're enjoying the beautiful weather and all of a sudden you say, oh, two weeks ago I did something not right. You know, that's the evil inclination. Why? Because all of a sudden you're enjoying life. Why would the evil inclination disturb you? Only because he wants to put your guard down. And while you're walking in the street, he wants you to do something else that you wouldn't do. But if it's in a time of prayer, then you can probably say that this is probably a legitimate remorse and guilt. At times. We're going to get to if it's really all the time. So like if you're thinking of something that I'm sakhilot, you can... Huh? Like you're making sakhilot and you're thinking... If you're middle of davening and you're thinking about... If you're middle of prayer and you think about something I've done wrong, we're going to get to it. At times, that is a legitimate guilt. But one thing we know for sure... If it's in a mundane act, if you're in the middle of working in business and you're in the middle of sending an email to somebody, an acquaintance, and all of a sudden you start feeling guilty because of something you haven't called your mother last week, you should know that's the evil inclination. Because what is he coming now in the middle of your work? He wants to disturb you from your work, get you off the phone, start calling that person, you're being productive. What's the rationale? So let's, what's the rationale behind it? And let's look at this. Which of the following statements are true? Page 104, here's a question for you. Which of the following statements are true? And here's a good one. One, regret leads to change. Two, change leads to regret. Three, it can work either way. Anybody for one? Regret leads to change. Anybody? Okay, that's two people. Anybody for two? Change leads to regret. Anybody for three, it can work either way? So most of you say it can work either way, correct? 
Is that what a consensus? Anybody why? Anybody want to explain why? Huh? Which one does it lead to? Circumstances vary. Okay, very good. So let's take the first one. There's a commonly held mistake that if I regret what I did right now, I will change my behavior. Meaning that if I regret something enough, that will lead me to change my ways. And the Alter Rebbe tells us the fallacy in this thinking. Regret does not lead to change. The opposite is true. Change leads to regret. How? Let's look inside. Text number 12. Before committing a wrong or all wrongdoers have reservations, and yet they are enticed to transgress. After committing the wrong, they regret their reaction. In Sefer Hasidim it said, the wicked are bursting with regret. You think after a guy does something wrong, he could be the most evil person doesn't regret it? The wicked are full of regrets. Does that stop them from doing it? We can safely all say that if I regret something automatically, I have yet to see something that should change. Then we will all be righteous. If everything we did wrong, we regret it, we would change because of it, I think we would be the most righteous people on earth. Right? (laughs) But we know that there are a lot of things we did wrong, and we didn't change. Why is it that more often our regret does not lead to anything meaningful? So here is a little video to help you with that. Shirley wanted to experience more of her Jewish heritage. She decided to start with some Shabbat observances, at least on Friday nights. She resolved to light Shabbat candles and have a Shabbat meal, pushing the mundane out of her mind for just one night a week. But as the sun was about to set that Friday afternoon, her doorbell rang. It was Sarah dropping by unexpectedly, and Shabbat was all but forgotten. The next morning, Shirley felt guilty about the speed with which her spiritual plans had unraveled. She resolved to do better, come what may. But life just continued to get in the way. Every few weeks, she would light Shabbat candles and enjoy a Shabbat meal. But it didn't happen often. Shirley grew frustrated, but also confused. On the one hand, she deeply regretted not following through with her Shabbat plan. But at the same time, her regret did not prevent her from repeating her mistake. But then again, it seldom does. We all make mistakes. We regret a lot of them. And we go ahead and repeat a lot of them as well. Because despite our many regrets, we haven't changed. So why should our habits and inclinations? But is there a way to break out of the cycle? Actually, there is. While Shirley was dropping off her son for his bar mitzvah lessons, she met Rivka, the rabbi's wife. Rivka invited Shirley for a Shabbat meal. What an experience. Shabbat came alive in a wonderfully meaningful way. By the time Shirley left, she felt like a different person entirely. 
Thinking back, she felt terribly embarrassed at her inability to be consistent about lighting Shabbat candles and to free up an hour or so for a truly meaningful meal. But this time, her regret propelled her to results. She consistently implemented her Friday night program and enjoyed it tremendously. What happened? Well, her initial cycles of remorse could not affect real change because she had not changed and continued to waver between conflicting priorities. But Shabbat at the rabbi's home raised her to an entirely new perspective. She was now changed. And with that inner transformation, she finally broke free. You happen to be the same person. So the same thing that tempted you to do what you did the day before, it's just a matter of time until you do it again. Why? Because you did not change. The same thing is about people. You enjoy the behavior. Just because yesterday, if I enjoyed something, let's take an example, whatever it may be. If a person enjoys a ham sandwich, and the next day they regret that they ate it, oh, because it wasn't kosher. What stops them from not eating it the third day? If they still enjoy it, they still want it, just because they regretted it. Regret did not affect that change them because they're still the same person. So chances are that that desire for having that want of whatever it may be, whatever you did wrong in any way, shape, or form, is going to reemerge. Why? Because the person did not change. Those desires, those feelings are still there. Real productive regret. Not a cause, but as a result of a change in perspective. A genuine feeling, a genuine change in feeling, that is what causes the person to change. Here we go. So if we look, yes? I have a question with that particular experience. That's just an example. All right, but the point being is, she had support. There's something about community... And when you make a change, when you have the support and you're among a people or a situation that's focused in the direction that you want to go... Okay, so let me give you a different example, okay? Even though that, first of all, just to take that illustration, just to answer your question, even in that illustration, not always does change have to come from within yourself. If a person has changed from without from someplace else, but that causes them to change, and then they have a regret. The point is, of what we're showing over there is, that the person had first to change, and then they were able to regret their action and actually change their behavior. That means, and let's take an example. Let's illustrate this point when we talk about change versus regret, regret versus change. Let's say a person acts disrespectful to their, to their spouse, and afterwards feels badly about the behavior. And says, oh, I'm such a bad person. What stops that person from doing the behavior again? Nothing. And that's why we see repeat offenders in many different things. Repeat offenders 
in repeats acts. Why? Because they walk in and say, oh, I'm so sorry that I did it. I feel so bad. And what do they say? Oh, I feel so bad that I did it. And therefore, tomorrow, they do it again. <laughs> but what happens if a person, all of a sudden, instead of feeling bad and saying, oh, I'm such a bad person, realizes, come someone, they says, wow, my wife works so hard. She does all these things. And learns to listen and appreciate the greatness of their spouse. Then what do you see? The next day, the person doesn't just regret. What happens then is the person doesn't want to fail again. I don't want to ruin the relationship with this perfect and great individual. What we find over here is the same with our relationship with God. The same is with our relationship with God. When we do something wrong, and then I walk out and I say, Oh, I beat myself up and say, Oh, I did something wrong, I'm so terrible. Okay, I'm so terrible, and tomorrow I'll be back terrible. I didn't change. But if I do it because of I want it, I see how beautiful godliness is. I see how great God is. Automatically, I want to have a desire to be close to God. And they say, oh, if I want to be close to God, I can't be that same idiot. I got to change. And what I did yesterday was wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it hurts my relationship with Almighty God. Then I'm not going to do it again then automatically I'm not going to fail again. Not only that, let's take it even a step further. Not only is this type of regret and only a change not real, but it's useless. It does nothing other than get you despondent and make you feel like an idiot. This means in order for us to be really Healthy, we need to banish any feeling of remorse or guilt or regret that comes to us on a regular day in the middle of our regular time. That means, regardless of what the offense is, how severe what you did is wrong, if you're just feeling regret, get rid of it. You know why? Because tomorrow you're going to do it again. It's inappropriate. It's not genuine. All it's going to cause you to do is either do it again or make yourself do it again. Think about the addict's mind. A person goes to Las Vegas. Whether well, it's wrong, right, or indifferent, we're not going to talk about it. Right? He loses $100 in the slot machine. What does he say? Oh, I lost $100. Terrible that I lost it. But maybe this time I'll get back the money. Did he change his behavior? Not at all. He regrets that he lost $100 because nobody wants to be less $100 in the packet. But nothing changed in the person. So now when we talk about genuine remorse that the Alter Rebbe was using, or genuine misdeeds. We have a new concept of what it means genuine. We have a new understanding of what it means legitimately, an appropriate guilt. An appropriate guilt means a result of genuine change. There has to be a result to the genuine change in the perspective and in the feelings of what the person did. Without that, the guilt is not genuine. It's not legitimate. If you don't have a change in perspective, that guilt that you're having is from the evil inclination to make you go even a step further from what you've done. Remember, it's not the sin the evil inclination wants. He wants the despondency that's going to come because of it. The negative emotion that's going to deflate your enthusiasm. So, what do we have so far? When do we have a genuine guilt? It's only when it brings about not only positive change, 
of genuine change. Genuine change only comes first and only then comes the regret. If there's a regret, then a change, then your change is, then your regret is not a regret and the change is not a change. Wait, so you're saying after you make the ultimate change, we're not why ultimate. would you still feel regret? Why would I still feel regret? Very yeah. good. Good question. Why would I feel still regret? Because let's take the example of the remorseful husband. Okay? He realizes and appreciates the greatness of his wife and therefore he feels bad for what he's done to his wife. That means if I don't realize and appreciate the greatness of my wife, I can't feel bad. If I don't feel the greatness of God, then I can't feel how far and distant I was because of what I've done wrong. But now let's... Yeah, yes? Then regret leads to change, not the other no, way. No, then change leads to... Regret. sorry enough, and you're willing to change yourself if you feel better. No, because if you feel sorry enough, then I'm why, then tomorrow am I going to do it again? So I have to change myself first, and only then, once I change my perspective or my feelings, then I can have a proper guilt. What instigates the change? Okay, so that's what you're... So, Patty, what your question is, what... So what you're saying is the same little question. The question is, what's going to get me to change if I don't have an initial regret? And the answer is going back to what we said before, a matter of perspective. I don't need to have regret to be able to have change. Like in the case of the woman lighting Shabbat candles, she saw a new environment of what Shabbat is. Like in a woman, or like in a man who comes home, he begins to see the greatness in his wife. Or in any other case, when you change your perspective then you have the ability to change without regret. Once I have changed, then I regret why I did the previous behavior before I changed. But why beat yourself up after you've changed? Good question. We're going to get to that now. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, the question over here is, <clears throat> when, if we say, we just mentioned that there are times that a person should have regret and not have regret. For example, we mentioned before that if a person has regret about spiritual matters during the day, not during serving God, it's never good. We mentioned when does a person have regret, even if it's in the times of prayer or learning, and his regret is about a godly thing, then at times it's good. So the question is then, if all these conditions are met, have we yet met the remorse test, when we're allowed to have remorse or not in guilt. And the time he tells us, not yet. And let's continue with the text that I skipped part of, and now we'll go back to it. Now, regardless of whether, text number 13, page 107, regardless of whatever the negative emotion happens upon us, while we are involved in the service of God, studying in prayer, we must realize that now is an inappropriate time for genuine remorse. Even over egregious misdeeds, God forbid. For genuine remorse, we need to designate at times, appropriate at times, when we have calmness of mind, elsewhere it's clarified precisely when the time should be. What the Altareb is saying over here is something very interesting. Even if during the day, during prayer, all of a sudden I'm davening and I feel guilty that I did something wrong. He says, get rid of it. Don't let it disturb your prayer or your davening. Why? Because you're going to get so disturbed, you won't be able to pray properly. And therefore, set a time at night, before going to bed, 
and you'll make something called an accounting of what you've done that day and all the things that you may have done wrong and you'll have that regret and you'll do everything in a regular time. It's called an accounting of your soul. Number one, you have a special time to do it. Number two, you're, number one, you're postponing the regret, the guilt, the remorse. And number two, you're containing it to a specific amount of time. They say a story. I'm sure you heard about the great two brothers, Reb Zusha of Anipoli and Reb Melech of Lizhensk. They were two students of the Magdalene who was rich. They would go around from town to town, holy Jews, saving Jews from prison and whatever it was. And there's many different stories said about them. But there's a lesser-known story about one of the brothers who's lesser-known amongst them, and his name was Reb Zalman. Reb Zalman was a very simple innkeeper. And once, no, Reb Zalman, the brother of Reb Zusha and Reb Ali Melech. And he was a very simple innkeeper who was sitting in, uh, once a per, one of the chassid came to observe him, and they watched him throughout the day. And throughout the day, he would take a little, every time something would happen in the inn, he would go and write down in this little black book. And then he would go... We write it down in the black book, put it back in the book. The whole day, write down, put it back. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the day, right before he'd go to bed, he saw the chassid, the Reb Zalman, sitting and crying over the book. Couldn't figure out what was going on. So he asked him the next morning, what are you doing? What are you writing down then crying over the book? He says, throughout the day, whenever I feel I did something wrong, I write it down. And at the end of the day, I cry over all the things that I've done there. What we see over here is, as we sh- the Alter Rebbe tells us, is that it's very important that every day the routine must be with positive emotion. And even though there may be a legitimate, necessarily necessary, productive, negative emotion that, can, that is there, it should be contained and postponed to a later time. To when? To bedtime Shema before going to bed. Now why? And we'll see text number 14. Every night during Tikkun Chatzot, prayer at the time at the bedtime of Shema, we must take a personal reckoning. We should taste the bitterness of all our own holy deeds, words, and thoughts from the moment we came into being until the present. The more we contemplate the greatness of God and increase in our emotional connection, the greater will be our pain over the focus of the meaningless tribulations and over the fact that the correspondence of our time spent walking in darkness and the shadow of death. Over here, the Alter Rebbe tells us that the definition of a proper uh, guilt is when appropriate guilt not only doesn't have to have result in genuine change, it has to have a controlled and limited time. Can anybody say what thing, What are the drawbacks of having a controlled and limited time for regret and remorse or guilt? What do you mean, what are the drawbacks? What's wrong with that? What, what possible problem can I have with that? I don't want to feel all negative at the end of the day. One wrong. I don't want to feel all negative at the end of the day. Anything else? What are you changing? No, we're talking about remorse. I'm going to have remorse at the end of the day. I have to change. I want to be able to do it. But why only at the What's the problem I'm having at the end of the day? Who's going to be able to sleep? There, who's going to be able to sleep? Might forget. How do I know what I did wrong? I, I don't do one thing wrong. I have to think about the old day, what I did wrong. He said he wrote it down. That was that guy wrote it down. But what of all of us? <laughs> so there are two possible downsides that can happen because of the possible drawbacks. Number one, not only I don't forget, but I don't feel guilty anymore. 
We are very quick people. People are transient. I do something today, an hour later, I forgot what I did. Not only if I get, I couldn't care less of what I did. Right? <laughs> as long as times are good now. Number two, how do I go to sleep? If I'm going to go to bed every night thinking and crying about everything I did wrong, how do I move on after that? What do I do? I'm going to sit and cry to myself to sleep because I'm a terrible person. So there's a single fundamental principle that has to guide us in any time we remorse and have remorse in this issue. Text number 15. During those designated times, we shall reflect upon the greatness of God <coughs> against whom we have sinned and thereby cause our hearts to be truly broken and genuinely embittered. The Alter Rebbe tells us, number one, think about it. Who are you reflecting on? What is the contemplation going to be at that time at night? Number one, Remember, I'm not only remorse, I've now changed. I want to connect to God. Why am I now sitting at night before I go to bed? Am I beating myself up that I'm a bad person? Or am I saying now I want to connect to God? And because of that, I may be a bad person, right? But number one is, I've already changed who I am. And because I changed who I am, I now, it leads me to remorse. Change leads to remorse. But now let's go a step further. What am I looking at? Am I saying I'm self-centered remorse? How bad I am? What I did wrong? I'm such a terrible person. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. I did that wrong the whole day. And that's why when I feel God is so great and I'm so terrible. Is that what your remorse is? Then you got a problem. But really what your remorse should be doing? Other-centered remorse. My behavior was hurtful to my relationship that I have with God. I didn't fully appreciate what my relationship to godliness is. Both are changed. Both are changed. I both realized what I did wrong. One is about me, and one is about the other. One is how terrible I am, and therefore I want to become a better person. And one is because that I, my behavior was terrible, and because of that, I hurt others. And therefore, I ruined my relationship. I ruined what I've done, or whatever it may be. I hurt other people in the meantime. But which one's the Alter Rebbe advocating for? If you look in the words of the Tanya, contemplating the greatness of God. It's not all about me. It's about God. It's not all about reflect upon the greatness of God of whom you have sinned. Why? And this is expressed continued by the Hasidic master who says as follows. Text number 16. When repenting, our regret and bitterness should be over the fact that we have provoked the Creator and anguished Him. For His sins have caused the exile of divine providence, divine presence. We should not overly focus on the damage we have afflicted upon our own souls, punishment for the afterlife or the like. Remorse is not supposed to be how big of a loser you are. That's not what guilt is. That's negative. That causes negative emotions. Remorse is more about how much pain you have caused God, how much pain you have hurt yourself. So let's go back and legitimize an appropriate remorse. Another step in appropriate remorse, we've now funneled it down. We've now realized that appropriate remorse, number one, has to be because of a faulty choice, not a result. 
It has to be productive that leads to a positive emotion and a positive change. It has to be genuine. It has to be controlled and contained. And even more so, it should be focused on the offended party, not on yourself. This is also the secret, how we limit it to a certain time at that time. <coughs> Text number 17. As soon as our hearts are broken, during these designated times, we should completely remove the sorrow from our hearts and believe with a perfect faith in God. And His abundant forgiveness has removed our sin. We are free to experience true joy in God that comes after remorse, as I mentioned above. Now over here we come to a whole new concept. The moment I realize it's not about me that I'm a bad person. It's about my relationship with God. And I know that God is an all-forgiving God. I know that God is infinite. And if God is infinite, His emotions are infinite. And if emotions are infinite, that means He's a forgiving for whatever I have done, the most egregious of all offenses. Then what do I have to be sad about? And now I can enjoy what's there to be despondent about. There's only room to be excited. There's only room to jump and joy. The human capacity for compassion may be limited. I can't always forgive, maybe. But God can forgive even the greatest of offenders. So therefore, if you're looking at it from a self-perspective that I'm a bad person, maybe you're a bad person. But if you're looking at it as a godly perspective, that because now you're tarnished your relationship with God, God forgives you. What do you have to be sad for? You'll sleep like a, like a, like a baby. You'll sleep like a no problem. Not only will you go to sleep not sad, you go to sleep happy because God has forgiven you whatever you've done. Because now you're a changed person. We'll talk about what happens when you offend another individual, but let's talk about our God. So how do we rid ourselves from these negative emotions when we schedule these emotions? It's very simple. Postponing it, number one, change leads to remorse. How do I move on? It's a God-centered remorse. It's a God-centered remorse. God is all forgiving. So now I can dance. So after you finish the Shema and you finish being remorse and feeling guilty what you've done in the morning and you realize that your connection with God has never been brittled or changed because God forgives you, you stand up and dance. It's a beautiful sleep you can have. In fact, not only can you move on, you're overjoyed. Why? Because even though I messed up, I have a clean slate, a new lease on life. It's beautiful. Now go back to what we started with. King Solomon says, from every despondency, from every negative emotion, there is a benefit. What's the benefit here? I'm despondent, I'm saddened by the fact that I'm remorseful, by the fact that I had broken my relationship with God. Now I'm so excited that my relationship is forever there. God forgave me. And that's the joy that comes out of the despondency. Because first I changed myself, then I had the remorse, and now I can have the joy. Any of you that have ever been here for Yom Kippur, especially the last part of Yom Kippur? Anybody here for the Ni'ilah on Yom Kippur? How do we finish Yom Kippur in Chabad Synagogue? And it's not only in this Chabad shul, it's in 770. And the Chabad custom is that right before we blow the shofar, we dance. Not only we dance, we have a march, it's called Napoleon's March. And we sing and dance. And I remember in the good old days, as a child, the Rebbe in the early years even jumped on his chair and then later on they put us on stage. And the Rebbe would stand on the stage and for 10, everybody, they, they were fasting. Though they were fasting for 25 hours, the place was 
electrified, and everybody was dancing and joyful. And you may ask yourself the question, are these people nuts? Are you suffering from some type of the, you know, double identity? For 25 hours you're beating yourself up. You said eight times, I'll hate, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, how terrible I am. And all of a sudden you're dancing. What are you dancing for? That you're the biggest idiot. <laughs> what are you dancing for? So Hashem forgave me, but I'm so bad person that I did all these things wrong all year. But if I'm feeling bad about myself, if I say that I'm a bad person, Yom Kippur, you're lucky that God even looked at you to forgive you. But if it's about my relationship with God, you know, sometimes people can go through a whole Yom Kippur and not even think about God. What are they thinking about? How terrible they are. How terrible I've sinned. Of what I've done wrong the whole year. Who cares what you did? It's not about you. It's about your relationship with Hashem. And sadly, many come to Shul only looking at themselves what they have done wrong. Why they need to be forgiven. It's not about forgiveness for yourself. It's about mending your relationship. About creating a relationship. Don't make it self-centered. It's not about I am bad. It's what I have by done to you. And because it's what I've done to you, now God said I have forgiven you. You don't have to worry about what I've done to you. It's all forgiven. That's the biggest reason to dance for joy. Because whatever I've done to you doesn't count. I'm not talking about I am bad. Who's I? Who are you? When I have to talk about myself, I'm talking about our relationship with God. So yes, the Tanya is talking about our relationship with God. But let's take this and move it on to a relationship with another person. Yes? Is that the picture that's on page 113? I don't see it. I can't tell if that's what they're doing. It's dancing. It says, move to four. Could be. Okay, yeah. So, the focus of the Tanya, as we know, is talking about a struggling doesn't only have to do with God. The same exact steps of remorse can also work with between a person and his fellow, family member, any other person that you feel you have wronged. The same principles will apply. Let's just go through it step by step how we will apply it by, you, by another person. I've done something wrong. Again, what's the appropriate response when I have done something wrong? Only I should feel guilty by a choice that I have done. So, for example, at times we make decisions that hurt another person. Yes, that's something you can feel remorseful about. But if the decision was made in good faith, and, there's, and there was a bad result because of it, there's no reason for you to be, feel guilty. That means, of course, you can say sorry, you can compensate the individual, but if you made the right choice, and that person took it the wrong way, or you did something the wrong way, and the result was bad... As long as you in good conscience made the right decision, there's nothing for you to feel guilty about. Number two. Remorse. That you're going to, don't just say, what's the very famous line that all kids say? Don't just say you're sorry. You don't really mean it. How do you know you really mean it? If it's productive. The remorse must lead to have changed ways. That means if you're sorry for getting into a fight with somebody last Thanksgiving, you shouldn't wait until the next Thanksgiving to talk to them. You should actually lead to something which will restore the relationship and thus great joy. Number two, 
the result should be of a genuine change. What is genuine change? It's not that you still think he's an idiot, he's a low life, but I'm still a nice guy, so I'm going to be the one to take the high road. You have to have a changed perspective in that individual, in that feelings. Feeling bad about what you've done wrong is not nearly enough is a genuine change. You need to change the way you think about that person. If the reason why you got into a fight with that person was because you feel they're a lowlife, and now you say, you know what, I'll just take the high road. I won't mention it, but I still think they're an idiot. You're not remorseful. It's a, it's a, false, it's a false remorse. It's a false guilt. And it's only something which is going to destroy you even more. Number two. Number four. I'm sorry, where are we at? Yeah, four. Control and limited time-wise. Meaning... Irrespective of what you've done wrong to the person, do not, and I repeat, do not allow that remorse, whether it's legitimate, even if it's the result of a change, to overtake your life. Don't walk around with a bag on your back and say, oh yeah, I feel so bad for the rest of your life for what you've done. You sit a constrained time, you take care of the situation, you know what you've done wrong, and feel and make sure, take time to feel the pain when you've caused the regret, but then move on. And finally, number five, focus on the offended party. It's not about you. You need to make sure it's about well, who you have hurt. It's like the story where a guy comes home, right? The husband does something wrong, and then he goes, I so, feel so bad, I'm such a bad husband. It's no, and then all of a sudden the woman says, forget, stop thinking about yourself for a moment. It's what you did to me. I don't need a bad husband. I want a healthy husband, a good husband that understands and appreciates my wife. Because if we keep on thinking about ourselves, it's about you, I'm so bad, beat yourself up, then you haven't changed. And it's not going to lead to change. There's two significant differences when it comes to a relationship between man and God, and man and an offense that one has done to a person. Number one, when it comes to offenses between God, the change and remorse is sufficient. When it comes to and you hurt somebody else, you need to make sure you ask that person for forgiveness. Number two, when you offend God, the forgiveness is guaranteed. When you offend the person, it's not guaranteed. And therefore, you need to try again to gain forgiveness. If the person doesn't forgive you the first time, you have an obligation to ask the person three different times in three different settings to ask that person for forgiveness. That is, besides making amends if you damage something of their property, to reimburse them and compensate them for the things that are needed. As we see in text number 18, the Talmud says, one who injures another is obligated to make restitution in five ways. The attacker must pay actual damages and also must pay pain, afflict medical bills, loss of employment, and humiliation. Even if the attacker makes these payments, God does not grant atonement until the offender implores the victim for forgiveness. So this leads us to see how there's always a difference while God always forgives and forever guarantees we human beings don't have that capability and therefore you need to ask the person for forgiveness after taking care of compensating them accordingly if there was damages done and Allah tells us Jewish law tells us that if they don't forgive the first time you still need to ask them for forgiveness three more times after that you move on so to conclude you have a beautiful flowchart on page uh, 115, figure 3.2, which gives you everything we've spoken about today in a nice, clear, concise way. But as discussed in the previous lessons, 
All forms of negative emotions are countered through living a life that is aligned with our divine soul, identifying with our holy and godly, selfless, godly mission-oriented soul. And the same is true when it comes to guilt and remorse. If you adopt the selfless-minded, mission-oriented, divine soul perspective, and you realize it's not about you, it's never about you, it's about your relationship with God, it's about the purpose of what you have here, automatically the guilt and remorse, you'll be able to move on, not only move on, but it's not going to bother you, it's going to help you move on and become better in life. So number one, so let's see. Our area today that we discussed was guilt and remorse. The rationale that we have is feelings of remorse are controlled and purposeful and lead to greater joy. So let's wrap up our loose ends. Remember our first two questions that we asked about. Number one, how do we differentiate between healthy and unhealthy uh, remorse and guilt? What was our first question? Uh, Anybody? How do we differentiate between the two? How do we differentiate between healthy guilt and not healthy guilt? If it's because of a choice, if it's productive, if it's genuine, if I'm able to have change first and then... Um, and then cha- and, pay- and have first change and then remorse, and it's controlled and focused on the funded party. At what point do you forgive? Our second question that we started off today was, at what point can you forgive yourself and move on? As long as you realize that it's other-centered, not self-centered, it's very easy to move on. As long as you think it's all about yourself, you'll keep on beating up yourself. The moment you realize it's not about you, and this is the ultimate thing, that this is the thing that people forget, and it's unbelievable how much, how, how much more I can't stress it. This is the conniving theory of the evil inclination. As long as I tell myself I'm a bad person, what do I think I'm doing? I think I'm remorseful. But really, what am I doing? I'm egotistic, because it's not all about you. Everything you do in life, especially things you may feel guilty about, is about a relationship. Whether a relationship with somebody offended or a relationship with God. And therefore, the more you align yourself with the perspective, that realizing that this is a divine mission, it's godly oriented, we see from the Tanya that this question that we ask, at what point can you forgive yourself and move on, is irrelevant. Even though the forgive yourself today is a catchphrase, because if you Google the words forgive yourself, you get 2,620,000 responses. <laughs> but in the time that doesn't begin, it's not about yourself. Why should I forgive myself? It's not yourself. You did nothing wrong. It's the relationship that has to be remorseful. It's the relationship that has to change. The moment you think it's about yourself, you're egocentric. And you'll never change. Because I felt good, so why shouldn't I change? Why should I change? So don't forgive yourself. Remember it's about the relationship. And therefore the question that we ask, at what point can you forgive yourself and move on? It's not about forgiving yourself. It's about connecting your relationship. And the moment you repair the relationship, it's very simple to move on. From a godly perspective, God always forgives us so we can move on easily. From another person that you may be offended, you ask them for forgiveness. Realize what you did wrong. Recognize and make it productive. Make it remorseful and then you can move on. So it's not a question of it's not a question of forgiving yourself. The question should be, how do I compensate for the pain that I've hurt that other person? 
How do I restore the relationship that I have with that person? It's not about forgiving yourself and feeling guilty or beating yourself up. So if we go back to the first question, the catch-22 that the Tanya asked. The Tanya asked, how do I feel guilty about being a wicked person? How should I always feel wicked? But then the Tao Mishnah says, don't feel wicked. While certainly we have to be perturbed by our past failures, but they should never stop us in our ability to serve God. And if it is stopping us, if it's not productive, then you know that that guilty feeling is from the evil inclination. In order for something to be a proper guilt, what we have on Yom Kippur, and going back to the Yom Kippur example, when we come into synagogue in Yom Kippur, it's not about telling God, I was a terrible person. No. It's about God telling God, God, how can I repair the relationship that I have with you? It's not about yourself. It's about the relationship. And this is what we find over here. So let's go back. In exercise 3.1, our first question for today was, identify a past choice that left you feeling guilty and you had this lingering guilt. I can be almost positive that that initial feeling that you had of that lingering guilt was A, was result-based, and B, was about yourself, not about the other person. Taking this in mind, you no longer have that guilt. Not only that, in order to change that, we need to change, then we can have that remorse. So we have we are happy, we recognize our failures and serve God with happiness. Value of benefit derived, we realize that it's about the relationship, not about ourselves. Here's a quick summary of what we learned today. Lesson three. We're thinking regret. Now, negative emotions, even when valid and appropriate, are never a goal unto themselves. They are merely bridges to the benefit that follows, increased joy and positive emotion. Two, it is vital that our ordinary routine runs exclusively on positive emotions. All regret and remorse must therefore be postponed with a pre-bedtime hour and contained time-wise. Three, the concept of remorse is often mired in moral confusion whereby we confuse with piety feelings that are actually toxic and expressions of self-centeredness. Remorse that flows from an unhealthy place cannot lead to a positive result, but merely perpetuates the negativity of its source. Four, these are the guidelines for legitimate, productive remorse. A. Remorse is appropriate only for something that legitimately calls for remorse, such as a faulty decision, but not a faulty result, because we can only control our decisions, not the results. B. Remorse must directly lead to increased positive emotion. C. Remorse must trigger a change in subsequent behavior. D. Remorse is not a catalyst for true change. Rather, productive remorse is a product of a shift in feelings and perspective. A changed view. E. Healthy remorse is other-centered, caused by reflecting on how you were wronged God or your fellow, not self-centered, reflecting on how terrible you are. 5. Guilt and remorse are countered 
through living a life aligned with our divine soul. So, a little bit just of a heads up for next week is going to be a tough class. Period through pain, addressing pain, anguish, and anxiety. Until now, we spoke about remorse, guilt, or, not, or negative emotions that come from spiritual awareness, spiritual feelings of guilt, whatever it may be. Next week, we're going to be talking about reality that can bring genuine negative pain from suffering, sadness that swiftly deplete us from our gas to be able to do and cause us to do uh, maybe negative emotions, more than just negative emotions. And that's what we're going to explore next week, is methods of shifting our eternal perspective and allowing the sun to shine in our lives despite some stark realities of our suffering. So, get ready for an intriguing discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.